Good to be with you all, as always. Um, thank you for the invitation again, and uh, it's always a pleasure to share fellowship with you. And uh, I believe I have a, a word from the Lord for you today, and to trust that it comes to your heart and is a blessing to you. Let me just say before I, I delve into the scriptures that very often we talk about ministry time, you know, at the end of the, the sermon or the message. Um, and, and that's good, and I believe in that, and you know I've, I've done that and do that. But I want you to consider that ministry time is the whole time that we're met together in worship before God. And especially as we come to Scripture, I want you to consider the possibility, indeed the probability, that God the Holy Spirit might minister to you as I preach. Would you be open to that? Very often when the preacher's talking, we're up here in our heads I want you to consider being down here in your spirit and actually being open-hearted to what God might be saying to you and what he might be doing right now as the word of God is preached, okay? So I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're only going to read the last verse of that chapter and then the rest of the reading is in chapter 14. And this is the story of David, or not David. It's not David at all. It's nothing to do with David. It's a story. I'm David. Abel. Abel, if you're watching, I thought he might have been here to introduce me. Abel, we here last week. Did you see him introducing David? David Legg will be here next week. Well, David Legg is here, Abel. If you're watching at home, don't think he's well. Um, this is me. Um, this is about Jonathan, okay? David's friend. Jonathan and his armor bearer. So we're going to read the last verse of chapter 13, 1 Samuel. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, Jonathan's son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was a hijab, who was wearing an ephod, he was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sine. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come up to us, 
and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. This is my favorite verse in this whole story. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, One day. This is not a once upon a time story that we often read about in fairy tales. And sometimes we read the Bible like that. We approach the scripture uh, as if it's some fantasy. It's not. This is a true story. This was one day that, that Jonathan and his armor bearer woke up. Now, it's probably an unremarkable day in many ways. I don't know what he had for his cereal in the morning, but he just got up as usual and did things as normal. Apparently, there was nothing remarkable about this day. And that's the way everyday life is for us, isn't it? Especially if you feel you're stuck in the mundanity of, of, of what it is to be a, a housewife or a mother or a, an office worker or a nurse or a, post, a postman or whatever your profession might be. Sometimes the humdrum of everyday life grinds us down. But I want you to consider today that this one day, in verse 1, one day was going to be a great day of victory for the the Lord's people and for Jonathan and his armor bearer in particular. And I want you to consider, start every day with the possibility that God is going to do something incredible. Yeah? Yeah? Yes? Yes. Amen. And there's a word for that. It's expectancy. Expectancy. Now, we often talk about faith in the Bible, and that's become, you know, a a kind of spiritual uh, cliche. And I believe in using that word. But sometimes we use these words over and over again so much that they lose their meaning because we're familiar with them. But expectancy really is the same thing as faith. And expectancy draws God. I wonder when you get up in the morning what you expect. Some people get up in the morning expecting everything to go wrong. Maybe that's because often things have gone wrong. But I want to tell you, if you expect everything to go wrong, the likelihood is that you're going to attract things to go wrong. But if you have faith in God and in his promises and expect God even when things do go wrong and things do go wrong, But if you have an expectancy in the promises of God, you're more likely to see that one day, an ordinary day, or a disaster of a day, could turn into a spectacularly victorious day for you and the cause of God. And so Jonathan is here on this one day with his armor bearer, and every officer in the army in these days, you know, every high-ranking officer would have had an armor bearer who's simply an assistant And they would carry the weapons and the shields of the officer, the equipment, if you like. Um, And you had to be unusually brave to be an armor bearer. And this was a young, brave lad. And the reason why he had to be brave was because his master's life 
depended upon him. He had to come through and give him the right weapon, the right shield for the right fight. This was a young man. I thank God for the young men and the young women that we have in our gathering this morning. I want you really to listen up because Jonathan, this warrior of God, turns to the young man and says, Come, let us go over. Now, verse 1, come, let us go over to the Philistines' outpost on the other side. Now, you've got to know there's two of these guys, okay? There's Jonathan and there's this young fella. And they are vastly outnumbered by the Philistine army. And in fact, um, they're under-equipped. And the Philistine army was much more advanced in their technology and, and, and their military equipment. And this is an impossible task, Okay? And yet Jonathan has this expectancy, this faith in his heart to say, come on, let's go over. And it's really a boldness, I think, that Jonathan had. He, he had to have a go mentality. He was daring. He was audaciously brave. He was like his uh, forebears, like those who'd gone before. And the judges, for instance, like Shamgar. You know Shamgar, he struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's a cattle prod. He killed 600 of the enemies of God's people. We read also of Samson. And with all his colored morality, God's Holy Spirit would come upon him. And there was one occasion that he, he slew a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. What? And these are not fairy stories. These are truths of the history of God's people, Israel, because they believed that their God was the God if he was with you. And we were singing, if God is for us, if God is with you, you are a majority. It doesn't matter how impossible the situation is or how many are before you. If God is with you, no one, nothing can be against you. So the Israelites believed the law, Leviticus 26, 8. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Five will chase a hundred, and a hundred will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. This was God's word, and they expected God's word to come true. They had faith in God's word. I want to talk to you a few moments about this boldness that Jonathan had. I'd like to talk about it under the term risk. Because Jonathan had faith in God. But he was taking a massive risk here. He and his young armor bearer before these hundreds of Philistines with all their armory, he is taking risk. And if anybody says to you, oh, faith is never taking risk because God says in his word that this is going to happen. So how can faith be taking a risk? Well, will you live up to that then and let's see how you get on with it. Let's see you face hundreds of enemies, just you and your, your wee lad with you. Huh? John Wimber said, you spell faith, R-I-S-K. Because there, there is risk with it. And that's the, that's the case right across society. It's not just a spiritual thing. Um, I don't know whether any of you have been watching um, the Elon Musk show on BBC Two on Wednesday nights. Who's your geek and has been watching that? Yeah. I, I, it's, it's been fascinating. You can get an iPlayer afterwards, a few expletives here and there and all the rest. But it's a fascinating story. You look at this guy, Elon Musk. He's a bit crazy. He probably admit that himself. He's probably one of the most powerful men on the earth today. I don't know what some people ask me. Is there some prophetic significance in Elon Musk? I don't know. Ask the Lord if you want to know that. But I'll tell you this. 
He is a guy who knows how to take risks. You only need to watch that, that documentary. And you see him, I mean, look at Tesla. No one had thought of this, the battery-powered cars, to the magnitude that he had, but he just went for it. And he lost a pile of money. He's made, he's the richest man on the earth. He's more money than anybody, but he's lost probably more money than anybody in taking risks. And then there's the whole space thing, SpaceX. And he's sending, he's sending up these rockets into space, and they're just exploding. Hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds just exploding. But he sends them up one after the other until one goes up. And if you want to go on one to Mars, God bless you. I'll not be following you. I'm preaching on risk this morning, but I'm, I'm, I'm risk averse to going to Mars and one of his rockets. But, but what I'm trying to say, if you watch that, that documentary, you will see he's lost piles of money. He's lost, um, <laughs> he's sacked a lot of people, of course. But he's, he's lost a lot. He's taken a lot of risks. The stock exchange has crashed as far as Tesla is concerned at times. But he kept going, he kept taking risk, and that's why he is where he is. Now, that's on a secular level. And I want to tell you today that there's a spiritual dimension to that. Because the person that never made a mistake never made anything. The person that never made a mistake never made anything. But we as Christians, we suffer from a condition called perfectionism. Very often when we've been brought up in Christian homes, you know, it's all about the do's and the don'ts and the rules and the boundaries, and we need rules and boundaries, don't misunderstand me. But we have this mentality that brings a certain paralysis to us and a passivity where we sit around doing nothing, waiting for God to do something supernaturally and sovereignly when we need to get off our backsides and take risks. Ask the Lord to deliver you from perfectionism because it's not of God. It's not of God. It's not holiness. And passivity is not of God. I mean, who of us, when we have children, when they're starting to toddle about, uh, would tell them off for taking risks, you know, going from the settee to the dining room chair, you know, as they toddle around? We put our hands out and we say, come on ahead. Come on. We encourage them to take that risk. And if they fall down, we don't scold them. We help them up again. If they cry, we say, there, there, it's Okay. And we let them go on. But they have to learn to walk. They have to take risks. They have to have falls. And it's interesting, it says here, John says his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over. And it says here, verse 1, but he did not tell his father. And maybe it's been your father that's knocked the boldness out of you or knocked the risk out of you, or knocked the adventure or the vision out of you. Well, you need to forgive him for that, but you need to move on. You need to stop living in your father's shadow. Now, we don't know why he didn't tell his father, but probably his father would have said, No, John, that is not a good idea, son. Put that out of your head. There's hundreds of them, and there's one of you. Do your mathematics, and you've only got this wee fella who's carrying your stuff. And we don't know the motivation of why he would have said no. Um, obviously, he may have cared for Jonathan, but there may have been other motivations as well. But whatever the motive, I want to say to you, people will, will try and cool your jets. People will try pour cold water on you for various reasons, not least because it shows them up big time when you go after things. Jesus said, cast not your pearl before swine. Jonathan didn't tell his father. Now, I'm not encouraging you to dishonor your mother and your father. And I'm not encouraging you to, not, to, to disregard their wisdom or their parental 
um, counsel. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But what I am saying is if God is telling you to do something and you know it's God and you have good counsel from other people, you go for that. And you don't need to tell everybody and you don't need everybody's approval. Remember Mary, all the nativity uh, experiences that she had, you know, the angels and, and the miraculous conception, the angels, the deliverance into Egypt and from Egypt. It says Mary pondered these things in her heart. She didn't broadcast them. She certainly didn't put them on Instagram. And I, I, I use Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that, but you have to be careful what you... You don't need to tell everybody what you're doing for God. But what I, I do want you to know is we have a reverse mentality when it comes to taking risks in the kingdom of God. But Graham Cook puts it well when he says there's always a green light in the kingdom of God. Always green light. I, have, I didn't operate like that. I've operated on this basis. There's always a red light in the kingdom of God. And you wait around until God gives you a green light. And then you go, but you never go. Until God gives you a green light. But the kingdom of God is. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Discipling nations for me, Jesus says. Go to the end of the earth and I'm with you always. There's always a green light until there's a red one. Oh, just keep going. Just keep going until you get a red light. Like Paul did when he went to go into Bithynia and God said, no, it's not time for there, and he took him on a detour and all the rest. But he kept going until he got the, the green light, or the red light, I beg your pardon. Wisdom is needed and balance is needed, especially young people. But I'm telling you this, we need more risk takers. And I hope there are some of you there, that, and there's a few younger faces over here as well, um, are going to be risk takers. David with Goliath. Remember David with Goliath. These stories never grow old, but we come familiar with them. You know, he's bringing the bread and cheese up to his brothers. What do you want? And then he hears this great giant defying the God of Israel. And he looks around him and he's, he's going to let him get on like this. Is there not a cause? That's what he's saying. Are we going to tolerate this uncircumcised Philistine? blaspheming in the name of our God. And he knocks him down with a, a sling and a stone and he cuts his head off. The young boy. Because he had this boldness. We see it with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Who is the God that will answer by fire? Who is the real God who hears our prayers? And you see it with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 whenever he was preaching to the Jews and he became the first Christian martyr. And he says to them, in peril of death, you do always resist the Holy, the Holy Spirit as your fathers have done before you. And they stoned him to death. And then the three Hebrew children, you know, in the fiery furnace, don't you love this? Wait till you hear what they said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. This sounds a bit schizophrenic thinking. But but even if he does not, they say he will. This is the way we often are in faith and expectancy. We believe God will. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Courage is the mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. 
That's what Mark Twain said. Courage is the mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. We've all got fear. Fear is a natural emotion. There is a spirit of fear. We don't want that. But ordinary human natural fear is inevitable. But it's what we do with that. Courage is overcoming it. And here was a young armor bearer. And I want to say to young people again, there's something in you that older folk don't have and middle-aged folk don't have. There is a natural vigor for life. There is that youthfulness that makes you feel you're you're going to live forever and you're not. But you feel that way. Sorry, break that to you. But you feel that way. And that's a good thing. But that's a thing that you want to use for God. Take risks. Take your boldness and build the kingdom for Jesus. During the 1859 revival, or just before it, and I think it was Connor Presbyterian Church, Reverend Hamilton Moore leaned over the pulpit one day, and he said to the young people, do something for God. Do something for God. And I think it was after that that four of the young men then decided to have a prayer meeting in the, in the schoolhouse in Kells, after which came the great revival of 1859. Over 100,000 souls were brought into the kingdom in that year of grace. Do something for God. Do something gutsy for God. Do something adventurous for God. Do something audacious for God. Do something crazy for God. And see what God does. That's only verse 1. Verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Now, this is interesting. Saul was staying and sitting. Contrast that to Jonathan. He was saying, let's go over. It reminds me of David. You remember when it says of him that at the time when kings went out to war, he was at home, and that's when he saw Bathsheba, ended up committing adultery with her and killing Bathsheba's husband. He wasn't where he was meant to be. And so you have this picture in verse 2, we'll not look at it in detail, of Saul and his priest with an ephod. And actually the priest was the nephew of Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed from Israel. And so what God's... Word is telling us here is that the glory has departed from Saul, his kingship. The glory has departed from the civic leader and the religious leader, this priest with the ephod. And here they are sitting, doing nothing, when the enemy is advancing. But thank God for Jonathan. And thank God for his armor bearer. But they weren't even aware, if you look at verse 2 at the end of the verse, they weren't even aware, or verse 3, sorry, the end of the verse, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. Now, first of all, no one needed to know. And as I I said earlier, you don't need to broadcast everything. And certainly you, you need to be very careful who you take into your counsel. But one of the reasons why they may not have told anyone was because it could have hindered their mission. And do you remember the Lord Jesus used to heal people and do miracles and then he would say to folk, now don't tell anybody. Now it didn't work very well because usually they went and blabbered it. But his motive, I believe, at least in in one respect, of telling them not to tell anyone was because of the influx of people that would have come and prevented them moving around the towns as he intended at that point in his ministry. Verse 4 and 5. This is very strange because they found this narrow path. And this narrow path, okay, a cliff going up one side, Bozes, and the other side, Sine, and it was a strategic place. Now, here's a word from, from the Lord for some of you here this morning. You have been on a narrow path, but you need to see that your narrow path is a strategic place. And this narrow path had 
sharp, large, steep rocks on either side. Bozes means shining, and some scholars think it was probably chalky rock that the, the sunshine reflected off. It was blinding. And sine means thorn. So maybe on one side there was this chalky rock, very bright, and on the other side there were these thorn bushes growing. It was not an easy climb. And some of us only want to be used by God if it's easy. <laughs> but Jesus said, the way is narrow. I like this narrow path. But I want you to see this narrow path made it easier for Jonathan to fight the enemy. Because there's only Jonathan and his armor bearer. So in this narrow path, they would be able to pick them off one by one if they came at them on the narrow path. Rather than having a whole multitude of soldiers before them. So, so there's a lesson here. That difficulty often puts you into strategic positions. And if Jonathan hadn't taken the risk that he did, he wouldn't have found himself in this strategic place of victory. Did you hear that? If Jonathan hadn't have taken the risk that he had, he wouldn't have found himself in this strategic place of victory. You see, it's our attitude that often determines our outcome. That when we waken up every day with this expectancy of faith and we decide to take risks for God, we all of a sudden find ourselves in strategic places where God does supernatural things. Do you know how you change your life? You change your life head first. Head first. The attitude determines the outcome. And look at verse 6 again. You love John, don't you? John said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps the Lord will act for us. I was saying, Hull your horses, John. Perhaps. I don't like the sound of that word. Perhaps. There's a little bit of doubt in there. Uncertainty? I was saying, Jonathan, I need you to show me a vision or a chapter or a verse. I need to definitely know. But here's where Jonathan was at. He, he didn't definitely know. But here's some of the things he did know. He, he, he knew that this was a desperate situation. And desperate situations require desperate measures and risk. He knew something else. That God was for his people. So he knew that God was with him. And then he also knew that, thirdly, God cooperates with people of faith to accomplish his purposes on earth. So something desperate needed to be done. God was with them, but God uses people. And sometimes we sit around thinking, why doesn't God just do this? Or why doesn't God just do that? But what if God is waiting for you to do something? For you to take a risk. Perhaps the Lord. What if the Lord's waiting on us? And don't you love this at the end of verse 6? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. The question is not how difficult the task is, but is the Lord with us or not? Do you believe the Lord is with us or not? And whether by many or by few, it didn't matter. It was a million to one stake. Many believed theologically. The Israelites believed it just like you do. If God is for us, who can be against us? But who was willing to put their money where their mouth was and do something about it? Nothing hinders the Lord. It, nothing hinders the Lord. That's what Scripture says. But there is one thing that hinders the Lord. Who knows the one thing that hinders the Lord? I'm talking to you all. <laughs> Who knows the one thing that hinders the Lord? Matthew 13, it says that Jesus went into his hometown and he could do no mighty work there, no miracle, 
there because of their unbelief. Lack of faith, lack of expectancy. That limits God. It's the only thing that hinders God. But when you've got expectancy and boldness and risk and faith, it doesn't matter whether there's many with you or few with you, you can overcome. Now, he couldn't do it alone. He, he needed his, his armor bearer. That's a lovely verse, verse 7. Do all that you have in mind, the armor bearer said to him. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. And that speaks to me of how Saul even had a, a band of men whose hearts the Lord had touched. We all need people around us who support us. In the Acts of the Apostles of the early church, they were of all one heart and one mind and had everything in common. And so he only needed that one man with him and God with him. And he was ready to go, come on, and let's see, perhaps God will act on our behalf. In verse 10 it says, Jonathan, moving in faith, saw the sign. Now this was a crazy sign. I mean, it really was. Um, he wasn't being foolhardy or self-confident in the sense that he had boldly gone, but he's still looking a sign. But it wasn't like, you remember Gideon looked a sign, you know, the, 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 the fleece. And, but God already told Gideon, I want you to go and I'm going to give you the victory. So Gideon was showing unbelief when he was asking for the fleece. But actually, what, what Jonathan's doing is a lack of faith in himself, a lack of faith in his heart. I'm going boldly, but I want to get this right and I want God to give me the sign. It's a weird sign, I'm telling you. Look down at it. He says, um, if, verse, verse 9, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. Now, that's the very thing you wouldn't do. And verse 10, but, well, I think, but if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. This doesn't make any sense to me. Anybody know military? military strategy is you always an advantage from a high point yeah so the philistines are up in the high point and they're down in this wee this narrow ravine and he's thinking this would be a good sign if they said come up to us rather than them coming down to him and they would have the advantage of the narrow pass doesn't make any sense whatsoever but god recognized it anyway and gave it as a sign because of because of jonathan's boldness and gave them the victory verse 11 look at that so both of them showed themselves the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes where they are, are, were held in. And if you go back, you will see this. Previously, in, in the previous chapter, uh, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 6, I beg your pardon, it says that the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, that their army was hard-pressed. They hid in the caves and thickets among the rocks and the pits and the cisterns. God's people were hiding like rats. And the Philistines are saying here, they're coming crawling out of the holes in the ground. God's people were intimidated. God's people were in the back foot. God's people were scared. God's people were yellow. Except for Jonathan and his armor bearer. And we see that God gave them the sign and the strategy. And you know, Jonathan didn't have to have all the strategy immediately. Verse 12, he says, come up. Uh, sorry, they say, come up and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into my hand and the hand of Israel. The, the, he didn't have to have a battle plan to go forward. He trusted God because he knew God was with him. You see, I want to know the whole thing, the whole agenda. I want to know the, God's calendar. I want to know how this is all going to end up. But you know what God is asking me to do? The only thing he's asking me to do is take the next step that he's showed me. 
Then he'll reveal the next step after that, and the next step after that, and until we, he gets us where we, he wants us to be. And then in verse 13, we see the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and, and, and they were delivered into their hand. And this is my favorite verse in the whole passage, verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was the panic sent by God. The panic sent by God. Do you know God can send panic? You remember in Acts chapter 4, the Christians are being locked up and they're being persecuted. Now, we are not being persecuted here, no matter what your friends on Facebook tell you. Um, we're not being persecuted, but it's getting tighter for Christians in our society in the West. And I think it's going to get tighter. And I think we need to be prepared for what's coming. But it's amazing when you see that they were rejoicing for suffering for the name of Jesus. And then they prayed when they were being arrested and brought before the ruling councils. They prayed, Lord, behold their threats. And stretch out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy child, Jesus. And it says that when they prayed that prayer, that the house where they were praying shook. Oh, that your house would shake. Oh, that my house would shake. Oh, that this house would shake with the panic of the Lord. Do you know the enemy panics when you don't panic? Did you know that? The enemy panics when you don't panic. When you're like Jonathan, when you're bold, I'm not saying fear isn't there, but when fear doesn't move into panic and despair, when you're bold and you choose to trust God and you choose to take risks and you choose to step out on his word, the devil, oh, I nearly says something there, but the devil panics. In Philippians 1, listen to this, verse 27, 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Listen, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Do you get that? When you don't panic, it's a sign to the enemy that he's doomed. Bill Johnson said, every time we resist fear, impending doom is broadcast over the PA system of hell. The demons try to get us to fear so they don't have to think what's coming to them. I want to do a little exercise right now as I close. I want you to turn to Psalm 68. <clears throat> and whatever enemy you're facing today, it could be your health, it could be mental health, it could be a relationship issue. It could be circumstances in the workplace, in the family, in the home, in the business. <clears throat> could be in the church. Could be on a demonic level. Um, I don't know what it is. But I want you, as we read this scripture together, to think of your situation. 
Verse 1, this is a worthy psalm to read all of, but verse 1 to 3 is all we're going to read. Look at it. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and be joyful. I want you to close your eyes. I was meditating on this scripture during the week. And the Lord brought a picture to my mind's eye, and I'm going to share it with you. And I believe that some of you will see that picture too. And this is what I saw. And I remember your circumstances that I spoke of a few moments ago. I want you to be present to those. But now become present in your mind's eye to this psalm. This is what I saw. I saw the Lord arise like a storm. In his great power and might. Just like as if he slammed his huge foot down on the earth. And the reverberations went out in waves like an earthquake. And sent multitudes of demons fleeing like vermin. It was like he blew on them and they scattered. Blowing out of his mouth turning 365 degrees. Then I saw the righteous in the midst of the storm. Then I realized they are in the eye of the storm, in perfect peace and rest. Quite oblivious to the battle around them, they are rejoicing in the Lord, singing and dancing before him in his bosom, happy and joyful as they delight in him. The Lord fights for them. As they delight in him, the Lord fights for them. Lord, I pray that you will come right now to those who are in the battle. Whatever that battle be, It could even feel like a literal battle. But I pray that you will show them that the battle belongs to the Lord. I pray that you will give them the gift of faith that moves mountains and casts them into the midst of the sea, that pulls up mulberry trees by the roots and casts them into the sea. Even a mustard seed of faith, give them that expectancy to believe that God will come through for them And even if he doesn't, they're not going to bow down. They're not going to give up. They're going to believe God until the end, even if they lose their head for it. Lord, give us this boldness. But would you shelter us in the cleft of the rock until the storm passes by? I pray for those who need a touch from you today who are sick. Lord, would you bring healing? Those who are traumatized, would you take trauma off them now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you deliver them right now from trauma? Those who need mental and emotional healing, 
Lord, would you deliver them now in the strong name, the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the day and generation in which we live, Lord, would you give us a holy boldness, not an arrogance, not a a kind of pride and uh, obnoxiousness that so often turns people off. Lord, I don't want that. But Lord, I ask you for a holy, gracious boldness to stand still and having done all to stand and see the victory on the victory ground that Jesus has given us with the armor of God clad upon us. Lord, we thank you that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We thank you that we lift high the cross as our banner of triumph, that we overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And may we overcome him practically today, even in our midst. May you put your foot down, Lord, and may the demons run like vermin. Breathe, O breath of God, on us and set us free, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.